0: Candice Slim and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And it's just me today because Rachel is on a very fun adventure right now. In fact, oh, I just got a text from Rachel. Okay, let's read it. She wrote, "Hi, just arrived in Cabo St. Lucas for Fboy Island season 4." Ooh. Was going to be an F-girl, but then I met Pitbull at a local beach club, and he asked me to work on a new album with him. Okay. The album is called What Would Christmas Music Sound Like in the Titan Submersible? Okay, yeah, let me just text her back real quick. Hey, girly. Sounds like fun. Would suggest new album title, Send. So, as the year wraps up, there's a lot of talk about goats. Forbes, 30 under 30, time, named their person of the year. It was Taylor Swift. I'll leave it at that. But that word, goat, greatest of all time, I usually hear it in like a sports context, you know? And so I'm curious, who are your goats this year? Is it Simone Biles coming back to the podium after a two-year mental health break following the Tokyo Olympics?
1: first place, gold medal winner, World champion for the United States of America, Simon Biles
0: Is it Jimmy Butler debuting a full-on emo phase at the Miami Heats Media Day? Unto which he declared tonight will be the night that I will ball for you.
1: Jimmy, last year you came out with the braids, man. What's what's this? I had dreads like, last year. For yeah, yeah, the, last yeah, the time. dreads. What's
2: this? Yeah. This is uh my emotional state. I'm one with my emotions, so this is what you get.
0: Or is it this moment when 19-year-old Coco Gauff won the U.S. Open? (laughs) This moment right here is when Coco Gauff not only won her first ever Grand Slam, but also became the first American teenager to win the U.S. Open— since Serena Williams in 1999. And Coco's win felt like a win for all of us. Because, you know, I remember last summer when Serena played her last game at this exact tournament. And I wonder if Coco felt this idea of legacy in a post-Serena tennis club, the pressure of that court at the stadium where Serena officially retired. The stakes must have been so high. The euphoria of that match must have felt like a movie. And I love the moment after Coco wins where she runs into the stands and beelines for her family who was embracing and hyping her up because I feel like that's what happened on the internet when they called Game Set Match. But my favorite part of this night was when Coco took the opportunity in her post-win interview to send a message to those who did not believe in her. You know, I
2: tried my best to carry this with grace and i've been doing my best so honestly to those who thought we who those who thought who we were putting water on my fire you're really adding gas to it and now i'm really burning so bright right now
0: and whether or not you think coco should have or deserve to be a little petty i think there's something about the way sports can be this unifying water cooler moment that is amplified because of the internet even if you're not a sports person. For example, one of the biggest stories that you might know about is the messy social media drama that ensued when Ashlyn Harris, a retired soccer player on the U.S. women's national team, filed for divorce from Allie Krieger another player on the U.S. women's national soccer team. They were married for four years and heralded as this beautiful queer power soccer couple that met on the team, had kids. They were going to cross into retirement heaven together. But after the divorce was filed, the internet started picking up that Ashlyn Harris had been getting real buddy-buddy with Sophia Bush, who you might know as Brooke from One Tree Hill. People Magazine then reported that Bush and Harris were dating. And two days after that, Allie posts a training photo on Instagram with the caption, preparing for the playoffs while in my Beyonce lemonade era. And you know what it means when someone invokes the lyrics of lemonade. The internet started circulating rumors and submitting evidence that Ashlyn allegedly may or may have not cheated on her wife with Sophia, who filed for divorce from her husband in August Alex Morgan, Sophia Smith, more teammates. They're in Allie's comments supporting her. Gotham FC, the team that both Allie and Ashlyn played for stateside. They comment, oh, you'll never recreate her. A few weeks later, Ashlyn posts a multi-slide notes app statement on Instagram. And all I'm going to say is that her comments are turned off. They're locked. So I'm not going to say who did what. But I don't think this story would have happened without The internet, because it's the Reddit threads, the TikTok investigations, Ali's brother jumping in to address the rumors. It's the microscopic tendencies of our lizard brains to pick up the little moments you don't see in the stadium. But the internet always has eyes. It's the way an athlete's behavior in one singular moment can become a platform for our projections. And listeners, you know the show. You know this is not a sports podcast. My greatest sports accomplishment was playing four minutes all season for my high school basketball team. So I wanted to bring in two people who live, breathe, and eat sports because not only have they spent their careers talking about the game, but they've also seen how some moments would not have happened without the internet. So on today's show, I'm talking to Bamani Jones and Tamara Griffin about the biggest sports moments of the year and how the internet felt about them. We'll be back with Bomani and Tamara after a quick break. Hey there. If you love our podcast, then maybe you should consider subscribing to Slate Plus. With Slate Plus, there are no ads on any Slate podcasts. And Slate Plus helps keep this podcast going because this show would not be possible without your support. With Slate Plus, you'll get bonus segments and episodes for shows like Dear Prudence, Slow Burn, and Culture Gap Fest. You'll also never hit a paywall on the Slate website, meaning you get access to every article and every advice column. Just visit slate.com slash Plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash Plus. And we're back. So joining me today is the host of the Right Time podcast. It's Bimani Jones. Hi, Bimani. Hey,
1: guys. How are you?
0: I'm so good. And I'm also so good because also joining us today is a freelance writer and journalist who primarily covers women's soccer. It's Tamara Griffin. Welcome to the show, Tamara. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited for the conversation. Same here because... You both are not only very talented journalists in the sports sphere, but you're also really good at translating sports for, like, the bigger cultural sphere. And that's where I come in. So let's start with a quick induction. You are both first-time guests to the ICYMI table. So we have to ask the question we ask all guests, which is, what is your first Internet memory? Okay. This
2: is the first memory that's coming to memory now. Um, I am a 90s kid. And... I don't know if either of you remember that PBS TV show, zoom mm. with, it was like a part variety show, part like science arts and crafts activity show. Um, I was addicted to it. And I remember finding out that zoom had a website and this is back in the, you know, families are lucky if they have a one family computer kind of right, AIM dial up age And Yeah. One of my earliest Internet memories is going on the Zoom website after watching the show, of course, Mm -hmm. um, and looking up the puzzles and the like after school snack recipes and the (laughs) jokes and riddles. Um, to just kind of keep the party going and procrastinate on doing my homework.
0: (laughs) Amazing. That's how they get you, the synergy. Okay, Bomani, what about you? What's your first internet memory?
1: Well, I mean, one thing I I feel pretty confident that I'm picking up here so far is that I'm definitely the oldest person here. Um, Because as I am thinking of, like, first internet memory I guess I'd have is just that sound. Like, that dial-up internet connected at 14.4K. Like, there's, I think there's a whole bunch of people that don't know what the struggle used to be or had to be at that point. Like, getting on the internet where I think we first got a hold of AOL before AOL could get you on the web. It could just get you on the AOL. If you knew somebody that had Prodigy, that was wild. Because, like, you heard about Prodigy, but what the concept actually was, nobody, like, really, like, fully, like, full-on got there yeah. for there to be honest. I think I was around like thirteen when all of this is happening. If you want to know what's memorable, at A for here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and can I ask for our listeners, aka me, what is Prodigy?
1: Prodigy was the first, like at home, like as AOL was kind of your first portal that you could use from your house to then get on to some notion of the internet.
0: Oh, okay. So our listeners are in for a treat today because, surprise, surprise, this is not a sports podcast, but I definitely think that the Internet has played a big role in the way we consume sports and the way we talk about sports and the way that certain moments kind of live beyond their lives on ESPN. So, Bamani and Tamara, you are here to help me remember the biggest moments in sports this year. Quick warning. Not a ranking, just say roundtable, think tank discussion of things we remember from this year and that we wanted to bring up as we celebrate the year. So I'm going to start with you, Vamani. What is your first pick?
1: Well, not a ranking, Um, but I think this would probably be the first thing to happen chronologically in 2023 that anyone would think about and it's kind of hard to think of something bigger which was DeMar Hamlin collapsing on the field in Cincinnati on January the 2nd, 2023 we got the year off to a big start. That terrifying moment involving Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin he collapsed on the field last night in a game against the Cincinnati Bengals and players from both teams watched as he was given CPR. In a statement the Bills say quote DeMar Hamlin Hamlin suffered a cardiac arrest following a hit in the Buffalo Bills game versus the Cincinnati Bengals. His heartbeat was restored on the field and he was transferred to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center for further testing and treatment. He was currently sedated and listed in critical condition. Hamlin is just 24 years old. I want to say he was a second year defensive back for the Buffalo Bills, went to college at the University of Pittsburgh. And collapsed on the field in a way unlike anything that anyone had ever recalled seeing and a game stopped in a way that people had never recalled seeing. with the ambulance coming out to get him would appear to be people trying to resuscitate him. Nobody really having a bunch of information, but clearly saying how devastated and effective the players were. And then perhaps the most ominous thing that you could ever see. The only thing scarier than seeing an ambulance is an ambulance driving slow without the lights on, but with a body in it. And that is what happened, which led me. I mean, I just very re- clearly recall calling my colleague, Dominique Fosworth, and saying is a former player and saying, did we just watch somebody die? And it turned out we did not. But everything that everything that you're afraid might happen while you're watching a football game it actually stepped up to another place. Because even like just about every former player that I talked to said the one thing they had never considered was possible of all the terrible outcomes they thought they could get out of a football game. None of them thought that they would die. And for that moment, we thought we watched somebody die on national television and that they were going to keep the game going.
0: I mean, even I remember this moment. This surpassed sports into this like bigger, bigger front page cultural conversation. Tamara, do you remember this moment? I
2: was actually on a a train from Portland back to Sacramento, where I live. Um, So I wasn't watching the game when it happened. But as soon as we had cell phone reception, I remember seeing the notifications come in and... My experience, because I didn't see it, was one of sort of a delayed horror mm. because the visual, the the stoppage of the game, seeing how deeply worried the teammates were um, added to this sort of emotional connection to that moment. And I didn't have that until much later. I remember how chilling it was. I remember how fervently everyone was checking for updates on his recovery um, and how scary it was and really having to confront that tension that you described, Bomani, about what it means to continue participating in this game and in this spectacle, knowing what the risks are. And after seeing so clearly the extent of those risks and what the stakes are and continuing to watch after that, um, that was what fascinated me also um, was that confrontation that we all sort of had to grapple with after it happened.
0: What do you remember about those first few days, hours afterwards? Like, were you kind of thinking about it all the time and just what's watching that recovery like? The fact that he did recover, that's a big deal. Yeah,
1: well, the recovery is good for him, but I don't feel good about the fact that we try to turn that into something that's good for us. It's not. Right. Like glad he did. Glad he did not die. There's nothing moving and inspirational for us about this. We just want to feel better about the fact that we watch this football. And so for me, I recall that when this happened initially and I watched the reactions that people had, it was you got to. I think that people are not honest with themselves about what they're watching when it comes to football because they don't want to feel like bad people. But the truth is Mm -hmm. we are watching people risk their lives and we are entertained by what comes from them risking their lives. And then all of a sudden it comes full circle with something that, by the way, I'm not fully certain is that tied to the football itself. Like this wasn't like, why did somebody get hit too hard? This looked just to be kind of a freak sort of situation that involved cardiac arrest and everything else, but it Mm -hmm. brought in. I think a lot of the guilt that people have about deriving their entertainment in the ways that they do, which leads people to say all kinds of things and to lash out at all kinds of people when they feel like those people don't say the right things and everything else. But I, I think I remember and I associate the moments after that for people with conflict, confusion, mm. like kind of like morally inside of themselves trying to figure out. So what? am I really going to keep watching this? Because if they had kept playing that football game, people would have kept watching that football game. And that's yeah. the part I don't think they wanted to be honest with themselves about. It was jarring and everything else. But when the NFL did not, was not trying to shut that football game down, they later said they never considered it. Come on now, uh, down band, mm-hmm. not at ESPN, did some great reporting on that. They definitely were going to keep playing the football game. But I didn't judge them as harshly for being willing to play the football game as other people because they don't have anything in the manual to say, stop playing the football game. I've seen right. people damn near get killed. I've seen people get paralyzed. I've seen people suffer outcomes just about as treacherous as the one that Hamlet suffered. And they kept playing the game. Mm-hmm. And so watching people try to come to terms with that in real time. And by the way, I, none of them people stop watching over that either. Not a yeah. single one. They all right back, including me.
0: Yeah, because... As someone who is not a sports person, this moment was so big that it spilled over into like several of my timelines. And it was also maybe one of the first times I ever had to really engage with the role of sports as this venue for ethical consumption. And this is not a new conversation at all, especially for sports journalists like yourselves. But it was such a tangible moment that kind of unlocked that conversation for culture in general. So I appreciate you bringing that moment to the table. Okay, let's keep going. Tamara, you're next. What's your moment?
2: So, I'm going to jump forward a bit in time and say that at the Women's World Cup, Spain's victory followed immediately by an act of sexual misconduct by the president of the Spanish Football Federation toward a player as she was accepting her medal for having won the World Cup. The president of the Spanish Football Federation has been slammed for this. Luis Rubiales kissed World Cup winner Jenny Hermoso on the lips during the medal ceremony. She said afterwards she did not enjoy that, but Rubiales rejected suggestions it was inappropriate. The worldwide outrage that that sparked, which ultimately led to the president of the Spanish Football Federation resigning and the head coach of the Spanish women's national team getting fired. And this was a moment that had several months, almost a year of build up to it, because last September 2022, 15 players on the Spanish women's national team each published letters announcing that they were boycotting and refusing to be called up for national team duty until they saw the necessary changes that they needed implemented in the federation. They had serious concerns about the behavior of their coach, Jose Vilda. They didn't explicitly name him in the letter, but there were a lot of implications. So even in the lead up to the World Cup, There was a huge tension that was very public between the majority of players on Spain's team and their federation. And so by the time the World Cup started, three of those 15 players who vowed not to play ended up deciding to play. But the other 12 sat out. Now, I reported on the World Cup. I was in Australia the entire time I was in the stadium in Sydney when this happened I didn't see it. None of my colleagues saw it. I don't think anyone in the media saw it because, you know, there was confetti going. There was a lot happening. I didn't even know that it happened until several hours later when one of my colleagues got a notification on Slack because someone had taken a video and it started to spread across social media. As soon as that video started appearing online and getting retweeted and shared across all the social media, and as soon as it started getting written about, it just felt like a watershed moment.
0: hmm And do you think in your best guess that the president would have been fired or the head coach would have resigned if the Internet wasn't what it is today? No, Mm.
2: because the thing is, people like that are only able to continue their bullshit. They're only able to retain their grip on power when they are supported by a system That's part of the reason why these players are actually still fighting with their federation as we speak. (laughs) Um, Because while these two men are gone, the rot is still there. The roots of the issues that allowed them to do what they did for so long are still there existing in that federation. And so what we saw at that World Cup final was sort of the the tip of the iceberg. You know, there's still Mm -hmm. so much more to mine. And I think that If we didn't have video evidence, photographic evidence of that kiss, if hashtags hadn't been created, if players hadn't come forward pressuring the Federation, they would have just continued doing what they were doing. They would have waited for the commotion to die down and within weeks they would have been back on their bullshit. So this was a case in which I think the Internet really did help spur change.
1: The one thing I would say, though, about the thing that I think is important about the power of the Internet there is the power of cheap reproduction. Because what the Internet then does is that small moment. This is normally a bad thing, the way this works, but it worked out very well in this case. You can take that small moment and then it keeps going and going and going. And so people don't have the ability to just move on in the exactly. discussion. As they would otherwise like that. That to me is the biggest part of it, is that people could decide what the thing is that they thought was important and then do something with it. Because, as you described, being in the people who were covering the event at the venue were not in a position to actually see what had happened. Mm -hmm. And so without the presence of the Internet, the people who are responsible for putting the information out there simply didn't have it through no fault of their own. You know, so this is where the people can kind of come through and help them out a little bit. hmm.
0: And I think this is a great time for a short break. So when we come back, we're going to talk about basketball and who you should keep an eye out for next year at the Paris Olympics. All that and more after the break. And we're back. All right. Bamani, what is your next moment?
1: I would say next year, I'm going to go with the arrival of Victor Wimbanyama, um in the United States. And first at five, Wemby has landed. After being picked number one by the Spurs last night, he is in San Antonio at this hour. And the importance of this, it has not manifested itself yet, but we will look back on it at another point and we will recognize that this is kind of, the this will be the year the future began for the NBA. For people who don't know, Big Vic is seven four, seven five, something like that. He's from France, and we have never seen anything like this before. A 7'5", center, in effect, who dribbles like a guard and has the potential to become a great shooter and maybe the best defensive player that we've ever seen by the time all this is said and done, who has been absolutely trained and groomed um, for this moment. It's been a recognition that this is what is going on. and There are a number of things about him that become important. One of them that I think matters a lot is that he is not from the United States. And we are seeing something very interesting happen now with basketball in the United States, where the highest levels of the superstar class are no longer populated by American players. Luka Doncic, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, the four best players in the NBA are in that list. None of them are from the United States. There's a lot of questions to be asked about how exactly we got to this point. How much of this is to be celebrating the idea that this has become more of a global game? How much of this represents the fact that we ain't making them like we used to over here? Right. Like, it's almost like when the the, the Honda and the Toyota showed up, it made you look around and be like, hey, man, I don't know. if the, I don't know if these cars be pushing up a lot of really getting the job done anymore. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. But it's still just at the superstar level, at the highest level, the guys seem to be coming from other countries. Yao Ming was a fascination coming from China at seven foot five. And if we're going to all be perfectly honest about this, there was something very particular about the fact that he was seven foot five and Chinese. The mm-hmm. assumptions that people have about the physical dimensions of Asian people, this really, really threw people off. Like you're telling me he, he that big and he for China. Yes, mm-hmm. both of those things were happening at the same time. Like I think that added to the curiosity factor. This is different though. Like this is not one where people are looking at it through the lens of, wow, well, we'll just have to see how it goes. There's an expectation that this guy is next that I don't think we've had really come around since LeBron James 20 years ago.
2: Not to impose my soccer brain onto it, but as someone who appreciates deeply global competition in sports, I love what's happening in the NBA right now. I think that I remember coming home from a night out in the FIBA um, World Cup final was still on and watching a bit of it and being like, yes, this is the future. I love that come next summer in the Olympics, we are actually going to have nail biters, you know, Mm -hmm. like popcorn worthy games, the entire run for basketball. It's only going to boost the sport. I love that people are getting just as good as a lot of American players have always been. I'm
1: really excited by that. I got to hit you with a counterpoint on that. And this is my only concern with with what you're saying. These ungrateful motherfuckers in this country do not appreciate that American basketball, both the men's and women's programs, the women's program more particularly, but still the men's also, this is the most dominant that this country is at any sport. Like This is Mm -hmm. the sport that the whole world plays. And that this country dominates because this country really likes doing stuff that only this country does. American football, baseball, you know, like we're really into (laughs) stuff that only we do. This Mm -hmm. is the thing that everybody does. They don't get any credit when they're good. And all they do is get killed when not even when they're bad, just when they're not the best in the world. And that's about to happen. Like This 2024 games could be very interesting in that regard. And all these dudes who deserve a lot more credit than they receive might not get it. And that is is completely throwing everything out of kilter.
2: But that's the chaos that I love. I am ready for that. Though I have to say, when it comes to women's soccer specifically, what's happening what you just described that's happening it's the in basketball. the same thing that's happening yes. to the U.S.
1: Women's National Team. Exactly.
2: Yes. And so I, I'm i only a year and a half or so into explicitly and exclusively writing about women's soccer. But part of what inspired me to do it was the moment I noticed that happening. Because it's when yeah. you have that competition, it's when you have the, essentially, the crumbling of an empire, or at least of a legacy, that things become interesting. That's where the stories
1: come no, from. And I, I hear you in the interesting part, but the thing is, at least the U.S. Women's National Team has the 1999 moment that everybody jumps around and they made everybody happy u.s men's basketball does not have any such moment there is no i mean like the dream team kind of right because it was just kind of like this cultural phenomenon but people don't support this team when it's great and just look for a reason to jump on them when they don't win and if they don't win yeah it'll be interesting in a very utopian sense in the way that you describe it but an actual application in the u.s of a I am not here for that. I need them to win every Olympics just to keep the Wolves at bay.
2: Yeah, you're right. I don't disagree with that at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, I had no idea how dominant foreign players had become in U.S. League. So this is very much a conversation that will come up next year in Paris. All right, Tamara, what is your next moment? My next moment
2: is also a basketball moment. Ooh. Um not the NBA. It is a collegiate women's basketball moment, specifically when Angel Reese did the you can't see me, John Cena hand and pointed at her ring during the NCAA finals earlier this
1: year. Caitlin Clark seems appears to me to know, look, this is what I do. This is what's done to me when I lose. You've got to use it as motivation now. But but a lot of people did have a problem, apparently not with Caitlin Clark, when she waved her hand in front of her face. But with Angel Reese, when does trash talking cross the line?
2: So we're at the final. The moment that it starts to become clear that LSU has secured their victory over Iowa, Angel Reese walks just close enough to Caitlin Clark, who plays for Iowa. Not close enough to get slapped with the technical, but close <laughs> enough so that the cameras can sort of get that shot. And she waves her hand in front of her face, um, referencing uh, a move that John Cena um Uh, created, um, with the, you can't see me. And she starts pointing to her finger where she plans to place her championship ring. And again, I didn't see this in the moment. I think I was tweeting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but when I heard about it and when I saw the clip on ESPN, I couldn't stop watching it. (laughs) I, there was something cathartic about it, I think, Um, because it's not often that we get to see Black women owning their power and owning their moment the way that she did. And it just reminded me of so many times that women generally, but Black women specifically, have been policed from that kind of behavior, whether they're athletes or not. That was my own personal projection, but I think that's part of what made it so momentous. (laughs) And I wasn't surprised that she faced backlash. I wasn't surprised that people expected her or were calling on her to apologize, that they were saying that she was being unsportsmanlike. These are the things that I personally want to see more across women's sports. I want players to be able to own those moments. I want more trash talk. I want more tension and texture because sports at the end of the day are entertainment and part of what draws us in addition to these you know displays of athletic grace and you know spectacle we're in it for the stories and you can't have a story without tension and Angel brought that and it was earned she won a championship I think that as women's sports no matter the sport um, continue to grow that we're going to see a lot more of that and I think that that moment, um, just sort of pushed open the door a little bit further for female athletes to show their full selves when they compete.
1: Thank you for owning your projection. I really appreciate that because every time I hear somebody talk about this story, all I hear is a big, giant projection. It is a huge projection. She She is... She was being an asshole, and anybody who says she wasn't being an asshole is in denial. And if that Kayla Clark would be an asshole to her in the same position, they losing, and Kayla Clark was following her around, and Andrew Reese had turned around and elbowed her in the mouth, we'd have had every explanation for why it would have been okay for her to get elbowed in the mouth, because she was doing the most, the most, the most, the most. There is... Everything for everything else about this that I hear when it came around the story, because to me, the real story of that tournament is the men's game is completely broken and the women's game is not to a point where you have recurring personalities that people can get familiar with. And they have actually built real life college stars that made the women's tournament, which has been so poorly treated by the NCAA and undervalued and everything else. It's now here. And it was the big event, because if you went and looked at the men's final four, I don't know who the hell none of them people were that were over there. I knew who the names were that were playing in the women's tournament. And it was this awkward, uncomfortable thing where part of why women's basketball is growing at the rate it has. And nobody wants to talk about this part is it has relevant white people and basketball at its most popular has always had relevant white people like the Magic Johnson, Larry Bird of the 1980s and all of this stuff is like when there are relevant when there's somebody for white people to root for basketball is a lot more popular on a national stage. And that's part of why Caitlin Clark is as famous as she is on top of the fact that she cold as she want to be, but she became that woman and what she also then became for a lot of people, I think our viewers and very many of them being black women, she became the target of their projection of everything that they don't like about the way stuff goes and the way that black women are treated and everything else. And so the UK me thing that Caitlin Clark does, but rarely like following anybody around where they're not even looking at you or trying to get away from you. That ain't the same thing. What we did as a result is we then took Angel Reese and we made her in large part into some variety of hero that honestly I don't think she has to be. I think that we have projected so much of what we want and people who feel like they've been overlooked and they wish that they could be assholes sometime too, then jump up and like, hey, way to go for her in this situation. And it worries me because I feel like I watch people after that event on the internet, grown adults defend the idea that they told Jill Biden not to come into the locker room after the game because she did not put that team far enough in their bracket. And there were adults who actually thought that that was not the dumbest thing that they had ever heard anybody say. No, no. You smile, you meet the first lady, you ask for a business card, and maybe y'all might be cool down the line. Right. But you got Kim Mulkey who don't want Jill Biden in there for what I would presume to be completely different reasons. And y'all and y'all go ride on the same side of that. I was going to try to get this story in here as, a, as, as my third one for this simple reason, because I think it was very, very big. But I think. I am worried about the way that adults have project- projected onto Angel Reese in a way that I question is if it's actually good or healthy for her in the grand scheme of it. She's a very good basketball player, though. I definitely think that part is the case, but nah, nah, ain't no heroes out of that. i just glad y'all won a game.
2: And honestly, that is perfectly fine with me because. I'm also putting this in the context of equity and equality. You know, I think that female athletes need to be able to have these same moments that, yeah, maybe a couple of decades from now, they will look back on and cringe, but won't damage their career, won't end their career. I think that's why I was saying we need more attention. We need more mess. We need more ego. We need more trash, um, between players and to be able to sort of move on from those moments and have them be sort of enshrined as these cultural moments that we discuss on podcasts like this and discourse around them like we're having and to move on. I think that that is part of what we need more of in women's sports because right now, so many of these incredible female athletes, I think, are still confined by these expectations that they behave, that they are entirely respectful that they hold back their urges to do the kinds of things that Angel Reese does because they need to be models and examples for young girls who idolize them. And I think the extent to which players push back on those expectations is ultimately going to be good for the sport.
1: I think that's fair. I think again, though, that that's the projection because I don't think that Angel Reese is doing that. Because Like I'm doing it for everybody. No, she not. Naji, the other part I would make it. There's a collegiate level to this too, because college sports, in particular, in the men's game, they've legislated all this stuff out too. Like, I don't think at the college level that this has nearly as much to do about gender um, as it might seem. And I totally, I totally get why someone would go there because, generally speaking, that makes sense. But I think for college sports in particular, like the fact that a person a technical foul is also a personal foul. They've done everything they possibly can to stop that. There is that that back and forth is not there. But I think also you kind of spoke on what I think is a bit of a conundrum in this situation, which is something like that should happen and everybody should be able to just move on from it. But we didn't, we're not, we're here right now. We still there, you know, like I don't, when does it, when slash how or whatever does it get there? Cause WNBA, they got plenty of back and forth over there. Like ain't nobody shutting the world down as it, you know, when, when it happens over there, it's not this, it's not the same sort of thing. It went the way that it did because Caitlin Clark became America's sweetheart, which is its own longer discussion that is worth having. Mm-hmm. She became America's sweetheart. And I think a lot of a lot of this just came down to that. Like that is where we start. They didn't win the championship. She still came out of it as the biggest star. Mm-hmm. Right. Angel Reese came out of it as the biggest star for LSU. Angel Reese was not the best player on the team in that championship game. But she had to do that to be somebody who comes out of it as somebody that we remember. Otherwise, we don't remember the rest of the people that are on the team. Like I think that that Final Four is going to prove to be the Final Four that changes the ways that we look at women's college basketball. We did something on Game Theory, a show I did on HBO. We did something about the whole tournament and everything that was leading up to it. Like It just happened to air right as all of this was going on. Like This tournament is going to be a watershed moment. I think for reasons that are gonna prove to be so much bigger than the way that that game happened to end. I just don't want us and I just worry about this and this is where I feel like the internet, the internet, we we all make ourselves the main character very often Mm. in the internet. And I just felt like the response to that moment in that game was a lot of people making it about themselves.
0: Okay, that's the show. I want to thank Bamani Jones and Tamara Griffin for joining me on today's show. We'll be back in your feed on Wednesday, so definitely subscribe. That way, you never miss an episode. Leave us a rating and a review, an Apple or Spotify. And tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod. And you can always drop us a note at icymi at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley Ricks, Rachel Hampton, and me, Candace Lim. Deza Rosario is our senior supervising producer. And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's Vice President of Audio. See you online or on Shams Charania's Twitter account.